0: continuing our study, as we're going through the book of Acts, and as we uh, have seen, you know, there's some consistencies. If we're going to be His church, remember, that's our goal. We keep reminding ourselves of that. We're not just trying to be a church. If you just want to be a church, or you want to be some specific kind of church, well, you know, this really isn't the church for you. Our goal here is to be His church, and that means that, You know, when we look in the book of Acts, we're seeing certain characteristics, certain principles, even certain practices that typify, characterize, that are essential to His church. You know, we've seen the idea, uh, you know, this that's been put out there about the obedience that, that they have to His Word. They know His Word, they study His Word, they're devoted to His Word, but they're also obedient to it. But we also see the importance of proclaiming the gospel, truth. We really talked about that a lot last week and the week before, but, but part of what we are is we're to be a witness. We're to be a witness not just in how we live our lives. Yes, we want consistency with how we live our lives, but we're to be a witness in how we share the gospel. And we see that through the church and the book of Acts. And finally, there's this constant reminder and acknowledgement that we cannot do this on our own, and we cannot do this even collectively as the church, that all that we're called to do is by the Holy Spirit, that only God makes it possible. The songs that we sang this morning, especially the song from Ephesians, reminds us of that. We we can't even save ourselves, and most people just stop there. They go, oh, we can't save ourselves. Okay, God's in his grace and and his mercy saved us. But then we think from that point on that now we got this. Now we can do everything else. God got us set on the right path. He cleaned us up and now we're good. It's like, no. There is nothing of eternal value that we are able to do that isn't because of what God does through us in, through his spirit. We also saw the other side of this, that as the church became more and more like Christ, the world wanted to deal with the church the same way it dealt with Jesus, wanted to eliminate. And we were introduced to the, the villain in chapter 8, there's, there's Saul, and, and he's going to come back here. So as we read the scripture, the church has, has scattered. But wherever they've gone, they've preached the gospel. And now we get back to the big villain, Saul. And so in chapter 9, verse 1, it says this, But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, "'Rise and go to the street called Straight, "'and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, "'for behold, he is praying, "'and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias "'come in and lay his hands on him "'so that he might regain his sight.' "'But Ananias answered, "'Lord, I've heard from many about this man, "'how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem.' Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. The villain, he's introduced And this chapter begins like where he's just ramping it up. However much he had done earlier, he's doing even more now. He was no longer content just to deal with the Christians that were causing problems in Jerusalem. He's like, no, now we're going to go after the ones that are on the road. In fact, we, we find when, when this story is retold later in Acts that even in Jerusalem, that if it ever came to a vote, if it ever came to a vote, you know, whether they, what they should do with the Christians, Saul always voted for death. He's the villain. Says he's still breathing threats and murder. Notice, he's not recruited. Nobody goes to Saul and says, hey Saul, we got a special mission for you. In fact, the way the story's told, no one's even thought of this. No one's even thought like, hey, we took care of Jerusalem, let's go take care of the next place. It's his idea. He goes to the high priest. He asks for letters so he can go to the synagogues he is going to go and round up these Christians. And if you've never heard this story before, if you've never heard this story before, you, you know you, you can, you're thinking like you know how's this going to go? Is this guy going to just be like just you know just constantly a problem? A phrase he will use later on: a thorn in the flesh of the church. Or maybe, you know, God's going to deal with him the way he dealt with King Herod. Just eliminate him. If you don't know the story, you're hearing it for the first time. What you don't expect to hear is that as he went on his way, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. We don't expect that. And it's hard for us because we know how the story ends. We know what Saul becomes. But I have to believe that there were people in this day, the people, Christians in this day who knew Saul, who knew what he had done, knew what he was doing before this encounter on the road to Damascus, that the last thing they thought would happen is this, and in fact, some of them probably didn't want it to happen. Some of them had that kind of Jonah spirit. You know, the spirit Jonah had when he was told to go to Nineveh, and he's like, I don't want to go to Nineveh. You know why? Because I'm going to go there, and I'm going to put in all this effort, and I'm going to preach about repentance and how God's going to judge you, and then you're going to forgive him. What is wrong with you, God? Don't waste my time. Saul is someone we would have tried to avoid. And he's someone that we would have certainly given up on. Because that's kind of the spirit of the world. The world gives up on people. The world gives up on people who God will use Mightily, And sadly, the church often gives up on people who God will use mightily. And yet the Bible is, is full of stories of the unlikely who God uses. Here we have the biggest enemy of the church. This this man who's filled with threats and murders, this man who had taken this whole spirit of the Pharisees. We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning, that you know one of the Pharisees' problems was is that they could only see what they thought was wrong. They could only see where they thought Jesus and his disciples were were off base. They could only see it so much that when Jesus himself, the Son of God, was right there loving people, bringing healing to them, they could only get angry. Just as kind of an aside for us, it's not directly related to this sermon, but just as an aside for us, because I've been in church long enough to see this poison take hold in people's lives. If you get to the point where you can only see what's wrong with other people, or you can only see what's wrong with your church or with a ministry that you're involved in, and you cannot see God at work, it's a dangerous place to be. Because either you're right, and God is not doing anything worth anything in those people or in that church, or you're a Pharisee. You're a Pharisee, focused on what's not right, and missing Jesus at work, doing miracles in your midst. Back to this week's sermon. Here is the un- the unlikely, the enemy. If you go back to the to the. Even the Old Testament, if you look at how many times it's the younger son God uses in in the Israel mindset, it was the elder son, he was the more responsible, he was the one who was going to inherit, and yet God uses the younger son so many times. We even see God bringing in you know women into key roles, again, in in Israel's mindset, wouldn't have made sense. And we really read about Rahab, we read about Ruth. Even the story of Gideon, and people remember what Gideon becomes, but they forget the story beforehand when God's trying to tell him, you need to lead the people. And he's just like this kind of like this scared you know, guy who's like, no, 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 I can't. Even after God proves it to him, he still, he cannot. The world gives up on people, I get it. But we, as the church, it's a problem when we give up on people. Not everybody's going to turn out to be Saul. Not everybody's going to turn out to be a great pastor or missionary. No. But we cannot give up. Because it's really not the person, it's really about, all about God. What God can do when He gets a hold of those who we think are weak or useless or evil. Isn't that the whole story of Christianity? The transformation God makes when he gets a hold of a life. And so we, we're here in this text where this, this biggest enemy of the church hunting down Christians, is suddenly confronted by Jesus. And as we look at this, you know, there are certain things I think we can, we can draw from this about why Luke was telling us this story. Luke was doing more than just, just telling a story about a person that every single Christian in the first century knew, that every single Christian for the next 2,000 years would know and would even read things that he had written. It's not simply to tell us his backstory. No. Saul is so much more than that. And the first point, which I, I hope that there is someone here today, or someone listening Today, or listen to this recording at some other point that has that has been caught in this trap. I hope that they're listening, that they will hear this. That saw the hateful, murderous saw, that God's grace was greater than his sin. God's grace is greater than my sin. God's grace is greater than your sin. I don't know how common this is any, anymore. I know there's still people who think like this, but there, it, was, it was, I think, much more common you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago when people would, would think like, you know, I want to become a Christian, but I don't think God can forgive me. Or you don't know what I've done. Or they might think like, I'm going to clean up my act first and then I'm going to become a Christian. And some just give up. No one, no one is beyond the gospel. God's grace is greater than our sin. It means something to us. It means something about who God is. Not just the greatness of God. Most of us acknowledge the greatness of God, but we don't acknowledge and appreciate and understand enough God's grace. His grace is greater than our sin. And grace is not, you know, what sometimes people call a cheap grace. God's just not like saying, well, you know what, I'm just going to forgive everybody. I remember when, you know, we were kind of discussing that and, at, at, at seminary, and, and you know, when, when that's, you know, first people kind of are attracted to the idea, why can't God just forgive everybody? Because if God was somebody who just forgave everybody for no matter what they did, who just forgave everybody, whether they repent or confess or not, we would not respect that God at all. If you think back to influential adults in your life, whether they're, they're teachers or coaches or your parents or grandparents or just people that you know kind of poured into your life, there's a, there's a certain part of us that, that love that, that kind of lovable person that didn't really push us, that never had standards for us, that was always just like, hey, everything's good. But if, I think, if we really think about those that really made a difference in your life, they're the ones that, yes, they extended grace to you, but they also held you to a standard. When you fell down, when you didn't reach the standard, they were there to help pick you up and encourage you and, and, and you know, teach you what you needed to teach and walk with you again. But they just didn't say like, hey, whatever you want to do is okay with me. Whatever you want to be is okay with me. we find this this picture of a god who who has no standards who doesn't who just forgives and extends grace to to everyone with without any expectations we don't respect that god this tells us something about who god is because if grace is needed that must mean there is a standard. There's a standard of his holiness. Paul writes about this in Romans five, about his own experience. If you read in Romans five, he uses several words to describe, to describe people before they become Christians and it's like he's talking about himself. He says they're weak, it says they're ungodly they're enemies of God he was all of that godless helpless enemy in active rebellion against God and yet God found him there's another part to this that i think is important for us when we understand that God's grace is greater than our sin and we understand the idea that no no one is beyond the gospel then that means we are relentless in praying for those around us we are relentless in sharing the gospel with the people around us that There's nobody, there's nobody beyond beyond God's grace. There's no one beyond the reach of the gospel. I think we kind of unconsciously sometimes kind of figure out who we really want to have in, you know, have in heaven, who we really want to, to spend eternity with. or we just decide that some people just aren't really worth the effort. If we believe that God's grace is greater than our sin, that we have to believe that no one is beyond the reach of the gospel, which means we never stop praying. We never stop sharing. Second thing I want you to see here is, is when when Saul is confronted, the first words that come from Jesus. He says, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And, and Jesus is identifying himself with his followers, with the church. But then, when Saul says, "Who are you, Lord?" Jesus says, "I am Jesus." I am Jesus. If we're going to be His church, we're, as His church, we're people who are followers of Christ. If we're going to be followers of Christ, we must have at some point in our lives encountered Jesus. Let me say that. I want to make sure you understand it. If we're going to be true followers of Christ, there must have been a point in our lives when we have truly encountered Jesus. Now that might bug some of you. You might might go like, "Um, I've never had that bright light, never heard the voice, never been knocked to the ground, I've never had anything like what Saul just went through. So, does that mean I'm not a Christian? Well, the good thing is this Damascus Road experience, which is what this is sometimes called, it's unique. You don't find it anywhere else in Scripture. Not in the New Testament. You don't find big light shining, people getting knocked to, you know, knock to the ground, having Jesus speak to them directly. So then the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to encounter Jesus? And I think this is a very important question. I think it's a question we don't talk about enough in church. I think a lot of times people talk about experiencing the Holy Spirit, or they might talk about learning about Jesus and understanding Jesus. And when they say follow Jesus, they mean like follow his teachings or follow his example. What does it mean to encounter Jesus? If it doesn't mean that I have some physical, like audible kind of encounter... What does it mean? I want to address this question this way, because I believe it's true not to just this text, but the rest of what we read in the New Testament. What we see happen to to Saul here is when Jesus says, I am Jesus. Everything changes. Everything changes. Everything in an instant. It changes. Just a couple verses earlier, he's breathing threats and murder. Just a couple. Verses earlier, his worldview is: My culture is right. Jesus, you either bow to my culture or we are going to get rid of you. By the way, if that doesn't sound eerily familiar to what's going on in the United States right now, it's exactly what's going on. Christians are being told again and again: Bow to our culture. This is what culture has decided is love. This is what culture has decided is truth. This is what culture has decided is pure and right and holy. And you, Christians, you need to get on our train. You need to bow to us. That's all. That's where he is. And with the words, I am Jesus. Everything changes. I don't understand that. I don't understand it because I became a Christian when I was like, I tell people, I don't even know how young I was. I've been going to church since I was a zygote. I've, you know, I've heard the gospel from the, the earliest stories that I remember. If you're going to look up zygote on your phone, it starts with a Z. Um, You know, I I can't tell you that that I went through this big moment, radical change. It's hard for me to know a person like Saul. A person like Saul who who was trained up in this culture, who was a Pharisee, he knew scripture. He knew scripture better than any other Christian at this time. And everything changes when he encounters Jesus. What does it mean when we encounter Jesus? I don't know what that means for you, particularly in terms of what it looks like, what the manifesting is. You know, some of you, maybe you did hear a voice. But some of us, it was that someone presented the gospel to us. For some of us, it might have been we were reading the Bible on our own and we encountered Jesus in the pages of the Bible. For some of us, it might have been seeing the example of other Christians and seeing Christ in, in the body of Christ or in, in, in some individual Christian that somehow we encountered Jesus in some way. But rather than talk about that particular way, What I believe should be the result of encountering Jesus is this. It's what we see in Saul. Brokenness. Humility. And new life. Brokenness. Humility. And new life. For Saul, happens in a moment. In a moment, I am Jesus, and everything changes. He's broken. He knows that all of that murder and hatred and anger, that bitterness that he had built up against Jesus and, and the followers of the way, broken. It's broken. He doesn't understand all of what's going on, why it's going on. He just knows it's broken. His desire to be righteous on his own. Broken. It's broken. And he's humble and we see that he says I am Jesus whom you are persecuting but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do immediately he's saying okay Jesus I don't know what happened a couple seconds ago I hated you now I'm doing what you're telling me it's weird and what we see from Saul is not just brokenness in a moment not just brokenness in a moment we're going to get to we're going to get to look at his life we're going to get to read the rest of the book of acts we can read his letters we can look at the rest of his life and we see it is a life of humility A life of wanting to serve God and obey God, no matter what the cost. Even when people tell him, Look, God gave me a vision, says, If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be in chains. Saul's like, All right, thanks for the vision. But that's where God told me to go, and I'm going. Everything's changed. And so, whatever your encounter with Jesus, I can ask you this question. Did you experience brokenness that has resulted in humility? Did you experience a humility that says, Jesus, I want to know your way. I want to know your will. And I want to follow you no matter what my culture says, no matter what my generation says, no matter what my friends and family say. I'm going to follow you because you did something to me. That, that I didn't even know how much I needed. You broke the power of sin and death. You broke the pride, the selfishness that gripped me. You broke it. And then you replaced it with something new. no halfway encounters we encounter jesus and we're forever changed or we didn't does it happen all at once i think for some people it does i think for saul it certainly did i can guarantee if we went around the room and people just shared about when they understood that what it meant to really have encountered Jesus, and to really be broken, that everybody would have a different story. Some of you would be just like Saul, I was in a moment, I don't know what happened, I was this way, and then after I encountered Jesus, I was going in a completely different direction. For some of you, it might have occurred over time Maybe, you know, you had become a Christian, but you were were still holding on to things. You were were still not really willing to, to, to just really say, Jesus, you are Lord, and you are Lord of all. Not just Lord of all out there in the universe, but Lord of all that I am. And maybe over time as you encountered Jesus and you understood more, you came to this place. might not have been a moment of brokenness, but you came to that understanding and that God working bit by bit over time. When we encounter Jesus, we have a brokenness that results in lifelong humility and a humility that obeys God and allows God to use us. And then we see this other part of the story. Here's Saul. He's, he can't even find his way. He has to be led by the hand, into Damascus. And whatever's happened to him, he's there, he's blind, and he doesn't know what's going on, but it says he doesn't eat or drink. And simultaneously, God is going to this man named Ananias. And Ananias is... Is going to be asked to do something really difficult. Ananias had heard about this Saul guy, and then he heard, oh no, Saul's coming to my town. Perhaps Ananias and the other believers in the church in Damascus had already come up with plans like what they needed to do. Maybe some of them were going to, you know, let's, let's escape. And others are like, maybe we should hide. Or, or you know, what, what can we do? And they were preparing for the villain, Saul from Tarsus, to come. And this vision comes to him and says, you need to go to this, this specific place. And Saul's waiting there. And he's praying And Ananias, he's not stupid. You know, he's like, in a way, in verse 13 and 14, he's kind of saying, Are you sure? You said Saul from Tarsus. Did you mean Crawl from Marsus? Maybe I misheard you. Could you say it again? And he's very specific. He says, You mean the guy who is coming here to... Drag us back to prison? You want me to go to him? And the Lord tells him, Yeah. Yeah, because you know what? I chose this guy. And he's going to help the church accomplish the mission that I've given to this church. You know, sometimes we think like these guys are like kind of superheroes and they're not like us. And we're like, you know, we read the story and it says, So Ananias departed. Like God tells him this in the vision, and Ananias goes, All right, good enough for me. I'm going. You got to think all the time he's walking to that house, he's like, Man. I don't know why God's having me do this. I'm doing it, but man, this, this could go very, very wrong. But then look at the words he says. Look at the words he says when he gets, in, when he gets into the house. It says he lays his hands on him and he says, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. I think when Luke is telling us this story, he's not just telling us the story of Saul's conversion, just like the other conversion stories we've seen in Acts. He's he's communicating to us important truth that if we're going to be true followers of Christ, this is what we need to And Ananias coming to Saul demonstrates the importance of God's church. True believers are a part of his church. True believers are a part of his church. This has become something that, that... Especially, it's not new. This has been going on for a couple hundred years. And every time a new younger generation comes along and thinks they invented this thought. And the thought is like, I don't need the church. The church is full of hypocrites. The church is full of weak people. It's just an institution. I don't need the church. You know, I can worship God out here in the forest or on the mountains or at the beach. Because, you know, God is creator. He created all those things we can commune. I don't know what that is. It's been called different things for the past few hundred years. But I know what it isn't. And what it isn't is it's not Christianity. Can we encounter God anywhere? Yes, we can. But as Christians... We are to be part of his church. Saul is really smart. He's really educated. He's really gifted. He's going to learn much faster than any of us can learn. In just a few days, a few weeks, he's in the synagogues. Instead of looking for Christians to arrest, he's trying to convert the Jewish people to Christianity. He could have skipped this whole process. But he doesn't. Because God doesn't let him. And Ananias comes and he welcomes him as a brother. Saul is going to experience true community. All of this stuff that he only looked at from the outside and hated and despised. Now he's inside. He's, he's going to experience the love that these people have for one another, the way that they serve one another. He's going to see that it's genuine, it's real, it's not, it's not something that's just fake or that's temporary. And in this early part of his faith, the church is going to be there to help him grow. And that's what we need to understand. We need to understand that the church is not just a place. It's not just programs. It's not just services. It's not just even people. It's more than that. The true church is, is this community that, that, that we encourage one another. We serve one another. We help one another. We, we learn God's Word together. It's one of the things that COVID has stolen from us. And it's one of the big lies of COVID. One of the big lies of COVID is, hey, I don't need to be with people. I can watch on my computer. And by the way, I am not in any way condemning people watching on their computer. I'm not criticizing you at all. Because I know many of you need to do that. The thing that, that I'm talking about that bugs me is when people say, watching on my computer is no better or worse than being in person. That's what bothers me. Because if that's actually what we feel, what is this community, church, family thing You know, Cheryl's family, the Toma side, is really good about family reunions. They have one every five years, and during COVID, they've had Zoom family reunions, like once a year, pretty awesome. But I don't think anybody goes, hey, you know what? Instead of having the five years, let's just, let's just do Zoom for the rest of our lives, because it's the same. We hang out together for an hour. We talk. We share what's going on in our families. It's the same. No. They would say, hey, this is better than nothing. This allows us to have some interaction. But it's not the same. Those of you who cannot be here, I hope that the fact that you cannot be here breaks your heart. For those of us who are here, and we think about those who cannot be here, I hope it breaks our heart. Not just, well, it's just how it is. It's the same. If we're people fiercely in love with God, and fiercely in love with one another, it's gotta break our hearts. true believers are a part of his church. And the last thing is a point we've hit many times before, and I'm just going to say it real quickly. Ananias knows before Saul what God is going to do with Saul. Ananias is the first one, the first human being that gets to know what the mission is for Saul. But the point I want you to see here is that God doesn't save us just to save us. He saves us so that he might use us. He saves us so that he might use us. There is no greater honor, there is no greater honor than to be saved and to be used by our God. There is no greater experience than we, that we have than fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. We're not saved just to be spared punishment. We're saved to be empowered and to be directed, to be used by God in His plan. His purposes. And that's what we see with Saul, who has no idea at this point what God has in store for him. So as we come to this close, you know, I just want to ask the question we asked earlier. Have you encountered Jesus? I don't mean did you pray a prayer? Did you did you invite Jesus into your heart? I don't mean that you know you know who Jesus is, that you you know you're trying to live the best life you can. But have you encountered Jesus in such a way that you've been broken? You've been humbled? And Jesus is now giving you new life in place of that brokenness. If not, I don't care if you prayed a prayer and was baptized 50 years ago. If you haven't encountered Jesus, I beg you, encounter him today. And the other question is, how can we help people encounter Jesus? And they're not secrets. How is Jesus present in our lives? How is Jesus present and evident in our church? And what are we doing to share his gospel wherever he leads?